my guest this week never planned to go into the fashion industry. The son of first-generation immigrants, he loved books and wanted to become a writer. But it was when he went off to college to study French literature that he started working at a famous Boston retailer and fell in love with clothes. Now he has more than 800 employees, generates over half a billion in sales, and is a pillar of the industry. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Joseph Abood. Joseph and I discuss his early life growing up in Boston, his 30-plus year career in fashion, and how he went from working at a retail store to becoming one of the few brands that defines American fashion. so interesting i've been listening to right now i've been listening to a book i read 35 years ago i'm uh, it's a book on it's called shogun well shogun was written by james claval who um it was a it was a blockbuster novel mm-hmm. in the late 70s i think it was done mm-hmm. uh and i just come back from japan because we have a big business in japan yeah and I'm just fascinated by the Japanese culture and their art and their beauty. And they, uh, my partners uh, are Onward Kashiyama. They're, they're a really powerful player in the Japanese market. And they built a new building that is sort of reminiscent of feudal Japan Whoa. in the samurai culture. It was, it, it's a modern building with all of these absolutely beautiful materials like bronze and stone and iron. So it sparked an idea since I was so inspired by Japan. I wanted to read or listen to the book now because, you know, when I'm in the car for hours, I really like to listen to, you know, including whatever it is, whether it's sports. But this is so fascinating. It's, you know, it's 1,200 pages, so I'm loving it. Jeez, yeah, that's I'm, heavy. I'm loving it. Well, Joseph, it is, it's a pleasure to talk with you. You are uh, a legend oh, in the entire you. industry. and. You know, I've one of the things that I'll try to do, obviously, before I, I sit and chat with people, um, you know, you, you go through your notes, you look through of the course. things about you have. But for you, I'll be very honest. And I was debating whether or not I tell you the truth on this. I didn't know you were a real person. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> until I don't, I guess, until I was more of an adult. But because I, I grew up, you know, around like the world that you were creating and building uh-huh. when I was younger. Uh-huh. And it was all about Joseph Abood. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't pronounce it correctly anyway. Right. So, but I didn't know. I thought it was just like a fictional character. That's fascinating <laughs> to me. I love that actually. Yeah, no, I actually, yeah, it's, I'm real. So <laughs> it's, it's good to know that you're actually, yeah. you're real. So you, you know, you are a Massachusetts guy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I grew up in Boston, um, and um, I I think New England roots are really strong. Like yeah. When people say, where are you from? I always say Boston. I've lived in New York for 30 years, okay. but I always say Boston. I still have a place up there. There's something about that. I, I think because I was really, I was formed in Boston, my work was formed there in Boston with the work I did at Louis of Boston, which was amazing. My yeah. love of clothes for when I was a kid 
going to downtown Boston to look at the windows or to see the new fall collections or to take $20 out of my bank account and go buy a new sweater from Scotland. I, it's just, it's really where kind of who I am came from. Right. Yeah. Well, wait, you said like when you were a kid taking $20 out of your account. How yeah. old were you in the, and when that happened? So I, I don't know why I always love clothes. I probably got up first, my first part-time job when I was about 14 or 15. Okay. Which uh, at uh, a little men's store in Rosendale Square where I lived. Uh, I worked for Anderson Little, which was this old clothing company. And I loved clothes. And I never made any money because any of the money I made, I just spent it on clothing. Yeah. But that's I pretty normal for me. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> right. And, I, and it's, uh, so that, tw- you know, I had a bank account of maybe $150 or $200. And every fall, I wanted to go to Filene's yeah. and buy one of these new Scottish cable sweaters. And the colors were amazing because they were like brindle and russet. And gorse, and you could you could smell the lanolin, and, and I used to keep it in the paper because I didn't want to wear it. Oh. I just wanted to <laughs> cherish it. So I, I, so yeah, so all of those memories are still so vivid. So you were a collector because that that's something that I did too. Is for me, th- the joy was in the ability to purchase sometimes more than owning the item. It's fascinating <laughs> that you said that because one of the greatest desires I had was to someday buy a suit or a sport coat at Louis of Boston. And that was an amazing store. It was probably considered one of the top three stores in the world. And so when I was a little older, like 17 or 18, before I actually got a part job, part-time job working there, I used to just go look at the windows and I said, someday I'm going to be able to buy a suit in that store. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, that is a collect. That, I don't know if it's a rite of passage or yeah. a sense of accomplishment that I can actually. And I did. I, the, one of the first things I bought, and you'll appreciate this, was a Polo Ralph Lauren jacket in 1967. So wow. Polo, that was his first year. Ralph, yeah, yeah. 67 was when he launched. And there was this absolutely beautiful Harris tweed plaid jacket with gold polo buttons on it. And it was a whopping $150. Oof. And it was made in America. And I said, I have to have it. And I had the courage to go in. I was a little bit of intimidated to go in the store. Yeah. And I saw the price and I ended up, it took me three months to pay for it because there used to be something called layaway. Layaway, yeah. Right? Oh, and yeah. I put like $10 a week <laughs> down. To get, so it took me three months to get the jacket. But maybe I love the way you put that. It was like collecting something that I can actually own that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, it, a lot of the, the joy in, in that purchase is also, um, you know, and we, we can talk about some of your family and stuff too, but, you know, I, I didn't come from the where being able to purchase things was, was an easy thing. That's right. So, so much of me like getting stuff or whatever that was was about like i i earned this you did it right. yeah <laughs> you earned, well that is exactly well it took three months as i said yeah. to get a jacket but you did it but but i did it and yeah. it was um yeah yeah it was um and I, I i still remember that jacket and one the really funny thing is about a year or so later there was an article in gq about ralph lauren and what jacket was he wearing he was wearing that plaid jacket. Oh, there you go. So I must have been onto something early. 
Well, that that was also a bit of like foreshadowing, right? I mean, because you you ended up working for Ralph Warren, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, for five years as one of his design directors, which is. That's incredible. It I mean, was, yeah. this is you're like manifest destiny. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but but it was I you know it's it's a it's interesting about your people talk about how did you get where you are today and I always say I absolutely have no idea. Because you know, it you kind of follow your creative people as you are. You kind of follow your lead, you follow your instincts. If you're good at it, you're mostly right. You make mistakes, but I never really had a plan. I just kind of ended up being here. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure there's something there because we, you know. Well, yeah, but 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 it comes at different stages, right? When I was buying that Ralph Lauren jacket in 1967 at 17 years old, do you think I had any idea a of ever living in New York, b of ever knowing Ralph Lauren, yeah. c ever starting my own collection? No, not at all. It was just a passion that. That's true. You know, and so and so each level that you reach, you go, what's my next horizon? What's my next mountaintop? Yeah. Which is an interesting way to look at life, you know. Maybe it's not textbook, you know, business school, but I've always been driven by my instincts and well, what was your next horizon after you got that jacket? Cuz you, you know, you ended up at Sorbonne, which is right. A mind-boggling, astonishing <laughs> so, so, place to be. Yeah, I kind of like. I look back at it and I go, "All of this stuff was really amazing." And by the way, it happened to me, so I've been really <laughs> lucky. So what happens is, I go in the store and I buy that jacket. And one of the salesmen said, "You know, we're looking for part-time help. Would you ever be interested?" Huh? He got scouted. Put, go, oh my god! I mean, to work here because <laughs> I was. Um, that was the first year of uh, the University of Massachusetts Boston. Mm. That, that year that I got the part-time job. I remember being home in, in my town of Roslindale, and I got a call. It was around dusk, and it was um, Louis Perlstein, one of the owners of Louis. And he said, uh, you know, uh, hey, Joseph, would you be interested in that part-time job? And, you know, it's going to pay $2.35 an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, but you have to promise me that you'll keep your shoes shined, and you'll always come to work presentably because this is Louis of Boston. Yeah. And I was ecstatic. So my first two years of college, I had two jobs. One was to work at Louis of Boston. Okay. And the second was to peddle the swan boats, which are in the public garden. Wow. So I really had two very diverse jobs. Yeah. Very, very polar extremes. Right. Right. And so, um, I love that. I loved, and, and that's why that part of Boston is so special to me because UMass at that time, was in downtown Boston. And so I was able to walk from, you know, school to Louis. And it was the 60s, right? So it was like the sexual revolution. Yeah. It was, you know, fashion revolution. Everything's changing. And I'd be going to, to my classes in that polo jacket with a shirt and tie. People thought I was a professor I, because <laughs> I had to dress for my life. I had to dress for work. Yeah. And I had to go right from my classes. So it was a... It was a really different uh, experience, but I loved it. And then what happened was uh, the, my, I was offered a scholarship to uh, go to the Sorbonne in Paris. Uh, for, how does that happen? Well, if you want the... the, the it was all about my girlfriend. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so I had to take language in college, and I, I was a little intimidated. And I had a very smart girlfriend. She said, well, if you take French... Mm-hmm. I'll help you with it. And, you know, and of course. Of course. Yeah, I said, I've been there. Of course. And Five so, years of French. Don't know a thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I took it and I did really well. 
And then I find out at the end of my sophomore year that my girlfriend's going to be going to, she was offered the scholarship oh. to go to Paris. And I was a little heartbroken, and, but I wanted the best for her. Yeah. But it so happens that the French professor who knew we were kind of dating said, if you take two summer courses, your grades are so good that we could offer you that same scholarship. Well, I took those two summer courses and I'd never been on a plane before or actually never really been much out of New England. So, yeah, sure enough, I was offered the scholarship to go to the Sorbonne, not for fashion design, not for draping, but for 17th and 18th century um, French literature. And what? so I, I, I originally had set my goals on wanting to uh, be a journalist or to go into teaching. So I'd never really thought about staying in the fashion business. Yeah, but you were, you were just, you knew how to present yourself. You knew the value of good things. And now you're, you're understanding like, you know, the beauty of culture right. in 17th and 18th century well, yeah. writing. And I love that. And I, I, I was an English and French major in college. And I love that. But the idea for me, now you have to think of this as 1970, 71. The idea of living in another country, it wasn't like there was a McDonald's on every corner or, 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 or Giorgio Armani or a Valen. The world was so different. When I got to Paris... It was a, an incredible culture shock in the most positive way. Yeah. The story I tell often is, because I, I used to take the, what we call the tea in Boston, you know, and that was mm -hmm. kind of the working class guy's way of getting to and from wherever he's going. Oh, yeah. Remember one day being on the Metro in Paris, and the doors open up, and a guy walks in in a tuxedo, and a woman walks in in a gown, and I said... Whatever this world is, I want to be a part of. <laughs> and they were going to the, you know, the metro stop, the L'Opéra, and yeah. they were going there. And I said, this is a world I don't know. And people dressed well, and there was this incredible style that I saw that I kind of fell in love with. Uh, and still didn't determine that I was going to you know, be in the fashion business, but I was so seduced by the beauty of it all. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, just I think there, there's, there's something that's really magical that happens whenever you get side out of your box. You know, and you get to understand that the world is bigger than you, and wow. you also get to kind of figure out, like, it, for the better and for the worse, but, like, who you are when you're not, you know, oh, you're, you're Mr. Abood's son, or you're Mrs. Abood's son. You know, you're you, just somebody, but it's yeah. knowing your place in the universe. Oh, yeah. Like, finding that level that isn't for anybody else, but it's for you. Yeah. You know, the gratification is... It's, it's a sense of accomplishment not to throw it out as a medal on your chest, a sense that you've achieved something. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it's a, it's a really, really positive feeling. Yeah. So you, you see these people, you yeah. want to get into this world. Yeah. You're still, you know, reading and, and yeah. learning more about yeah, yourself. Yeah, I'm taking Moliere and Racine and, you know, I've got all of the, you know, I've got all of the French poets and Baudelaire and all of this, like, really romantic, beautiful stuff, you know. Yeah. And living in Paris as a student, or there's a great quote from Ernest Hemingway, and it's in his book, The Movable Feast, that says, if one is lucky enough to live in Paris as a young man... It stays with him for the rest of his life like a movable feast. And it's true. It's absolutely true that that defined me in a, in a really, starting in Boston, which is really my home, yeah. and then having that experience to go and live in Paris on the left bank, you know, two streets over from Ernest Hemingway's home. And it was just, or to know where F. Scott Fitzgerald, and 
it, it was a, it was magical, really. Yeah. And often when I go back now to Paris, if I'm not with my team, I always walk back through my old neighborhood. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I do that with my, you know, my old neighborhood in New York, yeah. which, you know, not, not as cool as Paris, but, no, but you know. But, but that, that's the connection, right? <laughs> yeah. To the person you were is still the person you are. You just may have more experience. You may be older, but that's who you are. And that's, and that's why roots are so important to me. Right. You know? Wow, that, that's actually really beautiful to put it that way. Uh, it really is amazing, yeah. actually. So, so when does when does like fashion and design come in? Because you're 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 seeing this, you're you're kind yeah. of you know, and I've and I loved it. Don't don't I've always loved clothes and sure. And I think somewhere in my I in my head I said, look, I think dressing well and presenting yourself well opens doors. You know, you're yeah. you know, my first generation parents would say always oh, again, keep your shoes shine, say yes sir, no sir, always be properly dressed. It was kind of. In, instilled in us as to present yourself well. Mm-hmm. So I, but I kind of loved it. So what happens is I come back from Paris. I'm now in my senior year and I'm still part time at Louis. Oh, good. You got the gig back. I got the gig. Well, they wanted me and, and, and I was a pretty good salesman for them. For a part time guy, I was doing pretty well. Um, and I wasn't on commission, but I just loved interacting with people and talking about style and stuff. So I come back and um, now it's my senior year and it's, you know, what am I going to do? So I, had, I basically wanted to go on to grad school. Yeah. I actually got offered a job to teach at Brookline High School right out of college. Brookline High School is a very good school system up in, you know, suburb of Boston. And because most of the designers that we were buying at Louis, I wasn't a buyer now. I was still there part-time. Yeah. Were French designers. It was before the, 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 the invasion of the Italian designers. Italy was a country of manufacturing, not designers. Yeah. The French were the designers, Cardin and uh, Emmanuel Angaro. There were a number of, of these designers that were French. And so I ended up translating and writing all of the letters from my boss oh. in French to correspond to the, the orders we were placing into buying product. So they came to me and said, you know, well, we know you're graduating. We'd like you to stay on. And be part of the management team. Now I'm 21, 22 years old. Wow! And, and how I, old are they at that time? Just for the Delta here. My 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 boss was um, the the real genius in the business was Murray Pearlstein. He was uh, one of the greatest merchants that has ever existed in the menswear industry. He, I mean, Ralph Lauren respected and understood him. The people he, he the Europeans adored him. He was a tough guy. He was like a Steve McQueen guy. Mm. Um handsome guy, tough guy, you know, and um, he was 20 plus years older than I was. Okay. So here he, and he, and I guess he saw something and wanted me to stay on. Right. And I had that dilemma. I had, I, you know, do I take the teaching job at Brookline High School and continue with literature and all the things I really started with? Sure. Do I go on to graduate school and look in for, for a degree in journalism? Or do I take this like, amazing thing where I can travel to Europe, help my boss. I can translate. I can become part of the team and look really good and get, and be, and get a discount (laughs) on the best clothes in in the world. (laughs) So, um, I said to myself, if it doesn't work, I can always go back to graduate school. Yeah. But it was a chance to work for probably one of the most prestigious, you know, retailers, certainly in Boston. I didn't know at the time globally, and so I decided to do that, and I ended up staying on there uh, for eight years, 
became wow. I, I did everything from the buying to all of the visuals, the window displays, all the advertising and marketing. And uh, yeah, it was it was basically undergrad for me in this industry, but it was the best um, learning experience to be in this business. But because you have to be on the floor and understand what customers want and, and where the consumer's going. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I'm curious about your, your perspective about, you know, sort of on-the-job training versus yeah. formal training. Because a lot of people now, you know, and, and myself included, I all of my learning was really just like baptism by fire. It was just being in that industry, making those mistakes. Me too. And And... I count that as far more valuable, and weirdly, I now speak at school sometimes. But I count that far more valuable than than the formal education that yeah. I was that I was around before. I don't know if there really is a formal education for what we just talked about. To mm. learn about unpacking boxes in the back room, putting them on the shelves, putting them on mannequins, putting them on the windows, and then selling the customers. So that right. that full circle of the experience of retail, and I, I love a lot of the, the fashion schools and the merchandising schools, and mm-hmm. I have the good fortune to speak at them occasionally, but I always say to them, the reality check is, how does the business really work? Mm-hmm. Um, not just for the creatives and the designers, but for the merchandisers and all that. So that was the best experience I ever had. And it was, uh, it was four years part-time and eight years full-time. Right. I mean, so you basically get your, your PhD, and, and, and clothing and, and merchant. It, it was, and then I, I really started to develop a confidence in this thing. Yeah. And I loved it. I loved going to work. I, I, I had a, I loved my boss who was this Murray Perlstein. Um, I lost my parents early when I was, uh, when I was just before I graduated school. And he came, became like a dad figure to me. Oh. He would invite me over and, you know, his wife was great because, you know, She'd cook breakfast for me, and I guess it's sort of that sort of that stray dog thing, you know. And everybody kind of has an affection, so they were they were so gracious and so kind, and and uh, made me feel at home. So it was it was it was wonderful. That's that's really cool. Yeah. So then Ralph Lauren knocks on your door. So it's interesting. <laughs> so here's what happens: I turn thirty years old, and I say to myself, "Is this is this a, as good as I am?" You know, it's that Ooh. kind of, or or my, like I felt confident about it. Yeah. But I, I guess being pragmatic, I said, you know, am I just going to do this for the next 30 years and someone's going to give me a gold watch and say thank you? Or because of sort of my, the, my curious nature and desire to learn and continue to get to the next mountaintop, uh, I, I had the good opportunity to go to work for Ralph Lauren. Now... If Louis was, let's say, undergrad, mm-hmm. then working for Ralph at Polo was graduate school, okay. right? Yeah, that's that's, and I had gotten to know Ralph um, because I at Louis I was the buyer for yeah. Polo Ralph Lauren, so I would be in their showrooms. Ralph would ask my opinion: What did I like? Where did I think the market was going? And and he was very gracious and nice to me. But I loved his collection, and I bought his collection, and I think he liked the way I bought it. So. Um, they offered me a job, to, and I, but I had to make a huge decision. I had to move from Boston to New York. And not that it's that far away. Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a way. It, culturally, culture, very yeah. different, you know? Yeah. Um, but knowing that I loved what I 
was doing and knowing like who better to work for than Ralph Lauren, uh, I decided to do it. And it was, you know, it's five great years with Ralph. I, I, I look at that and I was very close to Ralph in terms of the working process. And one of the things about Ralph was is his fierce determination to be so true to who he is mm. that if there is a great, he has an, he's, he's tenacious and I admire him so much for knowing what he is and what he isn't, you know, what is Polo Ralph Lauren? What is the, he, he knows his DNA. He knows, he knows his guardrails and uh, I admire him so much. Wow. This episode is brought to you by away. Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase crafted with features that make travel more seamless. Now they offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems. So all you have to think about is where you're headed next. Because getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. I've been using the Away carry-on and have been obsessed with it. Made with a lightweight and durable shell, it's been all over the world with me and still looks fantastic. I can glide through the airport on the four 360-degree spinner wheels and never have a dead phone with the built-in ejectable USB battery pack. And I never have to worry if it breaks, because Away suitcases are designed to last a lifetime. If anything breaks, their team will have it fixed or replaced ASAP. Right now, Away is offering Blamo listeners $20 off a suitcase. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blamo and use promo code Blamo at checkout. Best of all, Away offers a 100-day trial on everything they make. Try it out on the road, live with it, vibe with it. If you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund, no questions asked. So visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blamo and use promo code Blamo at checkout and get moving. You know, so much of this conversation, a lot of this drive, uh, where, where was this coming from? Was this from like what your parents instilled into you? Is this from just yourself? You know, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I, well, so I've, I grew up loving old movies. And, and, and lots of people sort of look at that as archaic. But, you know, when I see a great old movie and I see the way the guys are dressed, you know, and I go, yeah, there was this sort of aristocratic confidence and style that coming from let's say an ethnic background right Mm -hmm. coming from the other side of beacon hill was something that just was so alluring and i really felt that um that was a drive that i wanted to be accepted i wanted to be um well there's someone of stub of substance Mm. and that was interesting for me i always thought that was part of it because there was a street in Boston that's called Boylston Street, and mm-hmm. we lived in the south end of Boston, which is very chic now, by the way. Yeah. My dad sold the house, I think, in 1956 for $7,000, a brownstone, you know? Wow. Um, some suits are more than $7,000 yeah. now. Um, <laughs> but there was this sort of um, philosophical dividing line. Then there was Beacon Hill. And that's where all, sort of all the Boston Brahmins were, you know? And it's like, I thought, I wonder who lives in those houses. And yeah. so there was something that was very appealing to that kind of sophistication. So maybe that was the drive. Yeah. Uh, but I think also the creative process for me, always learning something, always achieving something. The that's, challenge. That's, yeah. that's ageless. That doesn't happen when you're 20, 30 only. It's just for those of us who 
when a kid, it happens for all of us at, until we don't do it anymore, right? right? So for me, I feel like a kid when, it, when I think about what are some of the next challenges and opportunities. I love that part of it. Because to just stay stagnant, to do the same thing, you know, I, I, that's sort of against the human spirit. Yeah, like the curse of contentment is can be... A, it is a blessing and curse, right? <laughs> yeah. Of always being happy and never being happy. Yeah. Right? That's really the, the way this thing works because I think those of us who live in the creative world, we're sort of driven by that. Yeah. And a lot of people in the corporate world have a very hard time understand the creative drive and the creative harmony that you need to do your job. Mm. You know? So when things become challenging, you know, what kind of intestinal fortitude do you have? Like, can you, can you manage through that and still do the things you want to do or let those things drive you that fulfill you? So it's really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's heavy. I'm sorry, I didn't mean no, to get that. No, but it's... It, but, it, you know, there's always a story behind all of us. Right? No, behind it's... Behind you, behind yeah. me, your story, what drives you. Um, it's the human spirit. Really. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fantastic. So... You leave Ralph, mm-hmm. and you start JA Apparel. Right. And this is, this is now like your time to shine. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I've told my team so often, you know, the night before I opened the first collection, and I left Ralph. I mean, I left probably the best job in the industry. I had such a wonderful relationship with Ralph Lauren and his brother Jerry, who was head of all of men's. Oh, yeah. And I love those guys. To this day, I love them. But... I remember it was tough to leave. I remember telling Ralph when I was going to leave. But the night before the first collection, I said, what did I do? Why would I leave this <laughs> incredible job with people who really like me? I like them. And, you know, who knows? Who, who knows who Joseph Abud is? Who, who cares? The interesting thing is when we opened that first collection, we hit a home run. It was because I think I touched a nerve that there was something that was missing from the market. So Bergdorf's gave us a shop for a season. And there weren't two Bergdorf Goodmans. There was only the women's store. There wasn't the men's store. So on the first floor of Bergdorf's, my first season, I get a shop, a Joseph Boot shop, in one of the most prestigious stores in America. And then, of course, the Barneys and the Sachs and the Neiman's. And it was amazing. But I I realized it wasn't because it was a popularity contest about me. It was because I tried to bring a new concept of menswear to the American market, where the market had always been very divided by being very preppy, traditional Ivy League, Mm -hmm. which is what Ralph owned. Yeah. And then sort of the European market, which was sort of dominated by the European designers, Armani, where that was not necessarily for all American men. So what I tried to do is, as I often say, drop the collection in the middle of the Atlantic so that I could make American men stretch to be more sophisticated, Mm -hmm. but also create an American collection that would appeal globally to the Europeans. And our color palettes were different. Our silhouettes were different. They were American in their base, but they had a more worldly approach, a more sophisticated color palette, as I said. My shoulder was softer. They were a little more sensual. Yeah. It wasn't the sort of traditional Ivy League suit. So, yeah, we did hit a nerve, and, um, you know, it was great. What did it mean to you to have your name on a label? So interesting. Um, 
Well, it was just a substantiation that your ideas were right. Well, having your name on a label is one thing. The next thing is to see it in stores. Yeah. And then the next thing to see it is on somebody. Oh, my God. Right? But I think you have to, I'll, I'll tell you one story that is interesting to help you keep your feet on the ground. Um, <laughs> in the last, let's say, you know, well after I launched the first collection, I was taking my daughter, who was probably five or six at this time. So this is maybe 20 years ago. Okay. And I'm taking her on a Saturday morning because I always promised I'd take her to get this little Bratz doll that she loved. And But I had to stop at the dry cleaners first. And I have my clothes in my hand, and she's tugging at my sweater. And she says, Dad, can we go? And I said, well, I have to get my ticket. Let me get my ticket. And she says to me, well, Dad, your name's on your clothes, so you don't need a ticket. <laughs> so she thinks, what she thinks is that everybody who goes to the dry cleaners has their own label yeah. on their clothing, right. which helps you keep your feet on the ground. And it really caught me off guard because I'm saying, yeah, that's who I am. I'm just, I'm her dad and I'm Joseph Abu, just like someone else is someone else. I just happen to have my name on a label. So I, I don't ever take it as sort of a, you know, this huge medal of honor. It's just, it's something I'm proud of. Yeah. And I hope my girls will be proud of. And, um, you know, we've sold a lot of clothes over the years. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot. Yeah. I mean, it also, you know, to, to take one step outside of that, it kind of goes to show the world that you were trying to create for your kids and, you know, keeping them, you know, humble and, and away. grounded. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I, I have a, gosh, I guess she's like almost, she's like one and a half, almost two. Oh, my God. And so much of my perspective of everything, you know, that I do now, I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, wait, she's never done this. Like, oh, and, and how can I make sure that she gets this experience or this Absolutely. understanding? So your focus yeah. changes. And I remember when my first daughter was born, and it's very much like what you're saying, is I always wanted them to know who I am as mm -hmm. a person. And I never wanted anyone else to define who I was. Like, I wanted to control my destiny to say, I want to be a great father. And I want them to be proud of me. And yeah, if they have now as they're young adults, you know, they kind of get the whole picture. But growing up, you know, who is dad? Your daughter, like, who is my dad? Yeah. There'll be those moments. You're always going to be dad. And every moment is great. And um, you're lucky to have daughters or one daughter. And because I think it's a really interesting perspective to have young women in your life who can help you understand, you know, just their world. It, yeah. It makes me a better designer, I can tell you that. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Well, right now I use, now that they're in their 20s, I uh, use their their boyfriends as my focus groups, you know? Like, what oh, are they wearing? You, you know, what is it, you know, what's your boyfriend like wearing? And it's it's pretty cool to keep, keep up with a millennial play. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so then, you know, your, your business is, is wildly successful. Yeah. You sell it for a significant sum. Right. Congratulations. Yes. But then you have to, like, you, you almost, like, start over in a sense because yeah. you lose your name. Right. Well, it's interesting, just to be clear. So yeah, yeah. The, 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 what we sold, and this is an interesting distinction. Yeah. What we sold were the trademarks. I never sold my name. Oh, okay. This is a very interesting, not that we want to have a legal course here. No, no, no. But it's very fascinating. <clears throat> and what I, what I sold was the ability to use it on a label. But I always intended to stay with it. Ah, okay. uh, and then it it it's so interesting because you would assume that the people that were your partners would understand the kind of growth and opportunity that you present 
by selling it. So by selling it, what I did was I didn't want to worry about office leases and computers and and human resources. I wanted to stay focused on driving and building the business Mm -hmm. on the creative side. So I thought my best use of my talents would be to do that. But sometimes things just don't work out. Uh, It got sold to another group uh, who really didn't understand what that contract was. We went through a lot of legal challenges, and then that's really where the, your passion gets reignited because you say, you know what? Don't challenge who I am. You can challenge business issues, but I know what my drive is. Mm. And it kind of, as I said, reignites a fire, and you have to have a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to live through that kind of challenge as to who you are. Fortunately, we won the the lawsuit, and it was clearly defined that we did sell the trademark. We did yeah. not sell the name. So, yeah, and so working through those things, as I said, no one goes through life undefeated. Yeah. There's always that. Um, and, and for everyone, there's a challenge. Did you become, did you get more drive when, when there's, like, someone telling you you can't? Is, is that, I, oh, I, yeah. I have kind of a... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's one of those <laughs> things where... Coming back to saying, you know, I'm going to define who I am. You're not going to define yeah. who I am. Yeah, there was a... That's a Boston attitude there. Well, it might be, you know, <laughs> that old Boston strong thing. But I think so many people um, are faced with those challenges to say, who am I really? Yeah. And, you know, I can just go kind of roll up in a fetal position. Mm-hmm. Or I can just continue to, you know, move on and do the best I can. And, and that's part of life. I mean, life is, is rich. But you meet, I always think you meet princes and kings, but you meet goblins and demons. So <laughs> it's an adventure story. That, that's a, quite a picture to paint. Though. Yeah, right? And believe me, I have met them. <laughs> so now, you know, you're, this is this like phoenix from the ashes here right. in which you, you acquire all this stuff back. Right. You know, because you, you were at Heartmarks and, and now... Right, that was an interesting... <laughs> excuse me, that was an interesting... Um, time because there were some really iconic brands yeah with which are unfortunately struggling but the world shifted yes the world shifted from manufacturers brands to designer brands so 30 or 40 years ago 30 years ago men knew manufacturing brands Mm, okay today men know designer brands it's a very interesting dynamic because hickey freeman or hart shafter and marks were, let's say, uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Ralph Lauren was one of the first who really defined an American designer in menswear because it was all about manufacturing. But the younger guy today doesn't even know those names, They, you know, unless he's a connoisseur. Right. Uh, he doesn't really know those names. But they do know Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren, or they certainly know those names. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's true. It was an interesting, like, seismic shift that happened. Yeah, because now I would say, I mean, everyone, you know, is like, oh, I'm, I'm into this brand and this brand. And sometimes, like, when I want to try to act like I know more than what I do, like, the one thing I know is like, well, that's all made by the same company. <laughs> or, you know, and it's never to, like, make I love what you're brand. saying because, <laughs> because what I think, though, a lot of the, and I know this through my daughters, is that along a lot of the younger generations, I'm not just going to lay this on millennials, sure. look behind a label or behind an idea to see what it really is. That's very big in the Japanese culture. Yeah, They want to know what is behind. They don't just take labels to sell. They want to know the essence, the idea, the scent, 
But I think the younger consumer, because of the access of information, they want to delve into, are they, uh, are they a company that is politically correct? You know, mm. are, do they do charitable things? Are they working on sustainability? So it's, I find it's really interesting that they look behind a brand. Yeah, I mean, it's so much of what I do, yeah, has really been because well, the information's there. I can find it. I can yeah. learn it. And for me, maybe because of the background I've had, I my, my like weapon, my advantage has always been that like, well, I read those books already or I know that. Like, I want to know more than that person because I'm scared I'm going to get laughed out if I don't. Oh, well, that's so interesting. <laughs> but I, I think that's... Um, having that head start of knowing it because you love it yeah. is a really good thing. So that I had a thirst for this information, but didn't growing up, didn't really have the access to information the way we have today. Right. Yeah. So you just, you know, if you had to remember something about a movie and what he was wearing, you had to try to go find that movie where oh, you right. can just Google it now and it's up in two seconds or who was the movie star and what was he wearing again? Cause I remember this, you know, this double-breasted suit that was, like, dropped dead. Like, I always looked at the movie Casablanca, and I, I've always imagined those clothes in color. The movie's black and white. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul Henry, who's one of the, Victor Laszlo in the movie, he's wearing this drop-dead double-breasted suit, and it's a polka-dot tie. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a, that's a light British tan khaki suit, and that tie's a brown and white polka-dot tie. And, and I just... You know, I, 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 I wish I could know that. There's some things that you can't find on the internet, right? I just wish I could know that. But yeah. that's where imagination is so rewarding. Let me just dream about what this looks like. You know, the suits that they're wearing. And um, for an aficionado like you, some of the best movies that young, the young generations will never even know about were these Charlie Chan movies, which had, there were a series of 18 or 19 of them, that had the most incredible men's clothing you have ever seen, like off-white linen suits. Now, again, it's all black and white, but I'm imagining the ties were tied perfectly, patch pockets on jackets. The clothes were, like, dreamlike. Right. And, and it's kind of obscure. No one really knows that. But I and, – and, yeah, I mean, that's the stuff that I love discovering pre, you know, pre-internet, you know? And yeah. Sort of loving that and being inspired by it. I watched uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, the Jacques Demy film, oh, yeah. like remastered on Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah. And it was like mind-blowing to see all the, you know, because he's, you know, Jacques Demy always did a lot of the bright color and Absolutely. things like that. But seeing everyone's outfits in this little, you know, town in, you know, in right. Cherbourg in France, we're seeing. Yeah. It's incredible. And it's I, fantastic. Yeah. Isn't it? I'm like trying to take screen caps. Oh, yeah. It. No, well, I think <laughs> the movies have so much from a style point of view. Uh, when they made The Talented Mr. Ripley with... Uh, with the best. Ma- yeah, which is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, they playing this off around the 50s. Yeah. And they did a really good job from a styling point of view. I sort of look at that. Um, and so I always look at that as A, inspiration. And another thing is I go, did they get it right? The second Great Gatsby... Uh, did not as good a job as the first Great Gatsby film with Robert Redford. That was, I think, in 1973, and the other one was about four or five years ago, maybe. Yeah, maybe that was more the, than that now. DiCaprio, Bosnian yeah, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, that's probably maybe maybe seven or eight years ago now that it was it's out. But yeah, so I look at that and think, you know, how authentic did they get it? And you know, I, I, but I love. I was always fascinated by it. Yeah. So. You're at the we're at like the new day and age of of Joseph Abud now, yeah. and you've you've basically you've learned 
you know, and multiple lifetimes worth of stuff. And now, yeah. you know, you're, you're running this, this like empire, you yeah. know, more or less. Like how, how do you feel like that's, that's changed you now from your perspective, from all these different companies and places yeah. that you've been through? I think experience is the most brilliant thing. You know, I love the Asian cultures because they respect wisdom. It's right. not all about youth, right? I mean, the yeah. old joke is youth is wasted on the young. But um, it, it is, I think, the knowledge that I've gotten and the confidence I've gotten in understanding holistically what I do, understanding each generation, knowing that the new consumer, the new young guy might buy a suit, but he might wear it so differently mm. than his dad or his granddad. And understanding where fashion's going before the customer knows. So all of the experiences, you know, and what I, I don't really call them failures. I call them more challenges, mm-hmm. uh, not, to, not to rationalize it or justify it. But if you don't learn from the things you do, then, you know, you never get smarter. So I've really learned a lot about understanding men and how to make them feel sexier and more appealing and more comfortable with themselves. And, um, yeah, I feel, I feel probably never stronger than I do right now about a confidence of understanding the market, even with the way it's changing. Right. That it's kind of great in a way. <laughs> and, and, and to be able to help explain to guys and maybe even some guys, you know, uh, some Gen X or whatever, why the suit isn't dead. It's just morphed. How yeah. Because guys get caught in time warps and they're very, they're very literal black or white. You know, the suit's dead, so I'm not going to buy a suit. Well, it isn't really that. It's, it's much, you know, the world's like 50 shades of gray flannel. It's a whole different thing, right? It's yeah. never that black and white. So right now for me, it is, um, it's an exciting time. I think the industry itself is in, you know, real change because it's not buying clothes by the pound anymore. Yeah. You have to really, for a guy that wants a great shirt, right? It's going to be that shirt's just special for me. I want to have it. Yeah. You know, it's got to be able to touch the guy, talk to the guy. And um, so, so we're in a different place. Yeah. And so much for me, you know, I, I don't really buy brands as much anymore as I That's buy right. like stories and people. That's right. You know, cause I'm, I want to own, you know, this brand or this brand because, you know, I either have some sort of personal relationship with that person or I admire right. everything about them. Right. Or know? there's something that sparks an interest that, yeah. that, that ignites the, the desire. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think, you know, the days of, um, when I, this is one of the funny stories with Ralph. So I remember getting dressed for work and I said to Ralph, Ralph, I have 17 polo players on my body. <laughs> I had a polo player on my socks. I had a sure. polo player on my tie. I had a polo player on my pocket square. And so I've never, and, and we, we, because Ralph had such a wonderful sense of humor and ralph was and there's no one as great a style meister as ralph but he knew you know that commercially people liked logos of wearing a brand that showed something yeah i always said i want people to identify my clothes without a label or a logo on the outside yeah that you should say oh that looks like a joseph abu jacket or that looks like a joseph abu sweater without ever seeing you know the logo or the letters. And so I, I built my collection, not about me. I built a collection about my customers. Like you would wear a sweater from 
you know, my collection different than, let's say, a doctor in Connecticut, right? Who yeah. may be more traditional, right? Yeah. If you bought a V-neck cashmere sweater, you're going to wear it with your sneakers and jeans, and he may wear it with a pair of gray flannel pants. Yeah, exactly. But it's a great, great cashmere sweater, right? Yeah. It's just, it should be about you. It's always should be about you. Yeah. And, well, I mean, that's, that's I feel like, the way that like people want things to be now, especially where there's like this kind of like half rebellious attitude with people, um, yeah, it is. you know, being like, I, you know, I don't want to, or, or that person it's, said it's that thing. Or, yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah, that's right. It, but it's like, you, you know, for me and myself, like I, I still want to try to tell someone about who I am without me like saying it verbally. You know, it's all these, these quiet communication right. styles right. that I want right. to have. Think about, the messages that people send every day. It's about the way they dress, right? Yeah. They send you a message. And the, the president of the United States, the, the, the CEO of the most important company in the world, makes a fashion decision every day. And they send a message as to who they are. We all do that. But for me, I love to be a student of that because I can, it's, like reading, it's like reading someone's mind. You know, saying, oh, I can really th- know what they're thinking. But I love that. And I don't do it in a critical way. No, it no. just It just helps me to, so, okay, I figure that out. The guy that's wearing the striped tie, he wants to be very sincere. You know, the guy with the naked ladies on his tie, he's, uh, you know, he wants, he wants to be noticed. It's yeah. very, it's so interesting. It's really kind of a great study in, in, you know, kind of the human psychology. Yeah, I mean, especially in New York. Where, oh, it's fantastic. I mean, how many different people you see just oh, well, just walking up Madison Avenue, you know, is the coolest thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you've built this, this massive legacy. Do you feel like there's another horizon that you're still looking for? Or is this, what do you think? Yeah. I think I'm always looking for the next mountaintop. Yeah. I, 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 like I said, it's a blessing and a curse in a weird way. This has been really rewarding and wonderful. I think there's so many other things. You know, I wrote one book um, called Threads, which was in 2004, 2005. And, you know, that kind of creative spirit is to tell a story like I really want to do this murder mystery. I really want to do this. But it's all around the fashion business. But the fashion business in this book isn't just about a backdrop. The clues and everything, everything that's about the book relates to the industry. So it's really intricate. So it's fun. I mean, that's, that's kind of my imagination, whether I'll finish it or not. I don't know. Um, I don't have that book deal signed, but I have a lot of the work done on it. And um, it just allows me to continue to be creative and thinking and in what I do every day in my life. Would you ever go into film? You know, I always wanted to do wardrobe. You know, I always wanted to do wardrobe um, for a movie. I, I, I did one great thing for PBS. We did, uh, Kevin Klein, who's a really terrific actor, asked me to do a modern-day wardrobe for his production of Hamlet. Wow. So that was a really cool <laughs> thing. So I worked with, uh, with, um, with Kevin, and we put him in, in black turtleneck and a drapey cashmere coat. And, you know, dark trousers and all of the noblemen, I put them in double-breasted suits. So it was really fun to use your imagination to put Hamlet into a modern-day setting, um, modern yeah. setting for PBS. And so that's, that's probably the, you know, I haven't done a film. My clothes end up in films occasionally. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's fine. Um, but I love Hollywood. I'm a huge fan of, you know, Hollywood and, and, and movies, so... Yeah, it'd be fun to do it. But, you know, who knows? If we do a book and maybe it's a screenplay and then maybe you never know. 
but why not dream, right? Yeah. Why not dream? Don't stop <laughs> dreaming. You know, my advice to everybody is, doesn't matter how old you are or where you are, never stop dreaming because that's what drives us. That's what makes us human beings, you know? It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Joseph, this was a huge pleasure and an honor to oh, just sit and chat with you. It's, it's my pleasure. I mean, I have to tell you, getting into some of these things, you know, really makes me think about it again, too, about, wow, why did I do that? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's great. So I'm thrilled that you, uh, you wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, but before we wrap, um, is there anything you want to add or mention or or no, didn't or? yeah, um, not particularly. Other than you know the the you know the one of the proudest things I always think about is the factory that we have in uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. the Joseph Abood factory, and that is where we employ eight hundred highly skilled workers. We make our clothes in America. We make our clothes here, not because it's cool now, yeah. but we've been doing it since I launched my first collection in nineteen eighty seven. So. I'm so proud of that, not because it's, um, again, you know, the cool factor of making America, the people that we have there, the quality of their craftsmanship. And I go to that factory, and it's the most creative place I ever go to because I work on new silhouettes, and yeah. um, I hope someday you'll get a chance to come up and see it. Yeah, I know that. That'd be an honor. Yeah, you would, you would find it fascinating and very inspiring. For sure. Thank, thank you. That'd be awesome. Yeah, my well, it was, it was good chatting. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Edited by Brendan Finn, and our intern is Connor Vaughn. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Want to know more about what's going on in fashion, menswear, or just meet other folks? Join our Slack group. It's a private chat group online where tons of other Blamo listeners chat about everything. Just send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. All right, we'll see you next week.